In a world where coaches are still the main characters, the players are now legally chasing the ultimate bag, and the game of basketball is always the top priority, there is only one brand you can trust to help you wade through all the madness. Hey, I'm Tate Frazier from One Shining Podcast, and you can join me twice a week as we navigate the always entertaining world of college basketball. Every Monday, the Ringer's comment helps me make sense of the biggest stories from the weekend. And on Fridays, we talk to our many friends of the program. We're locked in on the best postseason in sports. Make sure you follow One Shining Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We had a conversation with Matt Hamachek, the director of the Dynasty, which has been a lot of fun to watch. We get into the first two episodes with Matt. Great stuff on what it was like to interview Bill Belichick as well. He had some great stories about Ernie Adams. You'll hear that coming up in just a little bit. We also preview the upcoming episodes as well. But I just wanted to hit on this before we get to Matt is we've been talking about the Red Sox and the lack of activity all offseason. And now you're hearing it from a player, right? It was Dustin Pedroia a couple of days ago when he was basically Sam Kennedy even admitted that he was FaceTiming them talking about guys that are still free agents. But now you have a current player and the highest paid player on the team in Rafael Devers making comments about what the Red Sox didn't do, their inactivity this offseason. So he was speaking through his translator at spring training on Wednesday So Rafi said, quote, they need to make an adjustment to help us players be in a better position to win. Everybody in this organization wants to win. We as players want to win. I think they need to make adjustments to help us win. He goes on to say, I'm not saying this team is not okay right now, but they need to be conscious of what the weaknesses are and what we need right now. He went on to say, everybody knows what we need. Starting pitching, of course, is what he's referring to. We'll get to that in a second. You know what we need. They know what we need. There's something that I can't say out loud, or there's some things I can't say out loud. Everybody that knows the organization, everybody that knows the game, knows what we need. As if, yes, it's plain and simple, they need starting pitching. He goes on to say, in my point of view, they're thinking about the future. Last year, we had an opportunity to do something, to be in the race, nothing happened. 
I thought back then, of course, they were thinking in the future when those opportunities came along, we need to be more aggressive and try to embrace those opportunities. Okay. He also did say he spoke to ownership of the front office directly when he was asked about these things. So this is not the first time that people have heard this within the organization from Raphael Devers. Okay. So a couple of things on this. Now, Rafi also had comments last year, remember, at the All-Star, or not the All-Star break, at the trading deadline that he wanted the Red Sox to do something. So the fact that your best player is saying this also reflects the fact that other people in the clubhouse, other people on the coaching staff want things to happen. And people have tried behind closed doors to tell the front office, to tell ownership that moves need to be made to address the starting pitching and nothing has essentially happened outside of the signing of Lucas Giolito. Now, first of all, as it pertains to Rafi, the first thing I'll say is this is leadership. He's the highest paid player on the team. And there needs to be a voice, somebody saying something to the organization of, hey, we need to make moves. We need to be active here. We want to win. And Rafi's saying, essentially, we're OK right now. We feel good about the offense. We've talked about it on the pod before, but we also need help like the front office and the ownership group have to give us help. So that's the first thing. I like that Rafi's the guy that's coming out and saying this because he's the guy with sort of the most decorated resume, if you will. He's the guy that the organization is the most invested in considering he has the long-term contract. Now, I will say this. As I said, I love that Rafi's saying this. I do think that now Rafi has to take that leadership onto the field as well because last year, the 19 errors, the most among any non-shortstop, he was 73rd of 75 third baseman in outs above average at minus nine. So he's got to be better as it pertains to his defense. Like that certainly has to be something that he worked on in the offseason and continues to get better at because there's no excuse for Rafi being a bad defender. And hopefully he takes that step forward. But getting back to the point that he made in terms of the front office and the ownership group has to help them. That to me is embarrassing for the organization. I love the fact that Rafi said it. I'm just saying that's an embarrassing thing for the organization because we can talk about this all we want in the media. I've talked about it on countless times on my pod. We've had Hench, we talked to Hench about it the other day, that they had Claire glaring needs and they didn't address him as it pertains to the starting pitching. We talked to Ann Kundal about it. We talked to Lou Merloni about it. It's a huge conversation. You have a guy like Ken Rosenthal, who's one of the insiders in the sport, talking about he doesn't know what's going on with the Red Sox this offseason, and free agents didn't know. So it's one thing for us in the media and us doing podcasts and you hanging out with your friends to say it and people calling into sports talk radio shows and complaining about the ownership and complaining about the front office. It's a totally different thing when your best player feels comfortable enough or feels like I should say it needs to be said publicly because nothing else is working. You're not getting the starting pitching you need. So Raphael Devers felt he needed to say this publicly. That's embarrassing. And this is on top of everything else that has transpired for this ownership group, whether it's going back to the full throttle comments, whether it's going back to Sam Kennedy trying to explain things about, oh, these are the parameters the team is in. We've given Craig parameters. All this stuff has been embarrassing. The whole offseason has been an embarrassment for the Red Sox outside of bringing Theo back. And now your best player is saying publicly that they need to do more. They're looking too much into the future. He wants to win. He's sick and tired of losing. I think that's flat out embarrassing. And it's very simple to figure this out when you look at what Rafi's referring to the starting pitching. Last year, the Red Sox were 27th in innings pitched out of their starters. We've given you that number before, 22nd in war. The one guy they had is Lucas Giolito. 
Lucas Giolito last year, 2.00 home runs per nine innings. Only Lance Lynn was worse. Now, I told you, this is a guy that is at least going to give you innings, but we don't know if he's going to give you a good performance. Now, hopefully Andrew Bailey can, who everybody's been high on down there in spring training about Andrew Bailey, hopefully he can get his fastball right. That was the main issue last year. But if you go back to last season and you start to look at some of the issues he had, there are definitely question marks there. He was 52nd of 56 starting pitchers that threw at least 150 innings in war. So he was not a valuable player last year. In fact, he was a negative player, right? So this is what you're selling your team on is, hey, we have, we brought in Lucas Giolito and then we have a bunch of unproven guys, right? Now, there are a couple of guys that you look at and you say, hey, we can depend on these guys in terms of Pavetta turned it on last season, right? But if you look at it, Bayo, Giolito, and Pavetta are the only guys that have thrown at least 150 innings in a major league season. Bayo, of course, did it last year for the first time. Now, if you look at a guy like Cutter Crawford, so 129 in the third last year, that was his first time, or that was the most innings he's ever pitched at the major league level. Third time through the order, 49 plate appearances, uh, 1142 OPS. So it's not a high number, and I like Crawford a lot. I've referenced how good his fastball is. But he's still unproven as a major league starter. So there's still questions there. Houck, his career high is 106 innings. Third time through the order in his career, opponent's batting average of 303. Whitlock is a career high 78 in the third innings. This is going to be his 28-year-old season too. And he has a career ERA of 476 as a starter. So he struggled as a starter. And I think with Whitlock, it's about health. Can he stay healthy? And then Winkowski, 84 and a third is his high. So you have a lot of question marks. And... Even like, there's no, I love Pavetta. I think he's going to have a good season, but there's still a question there. Bayo entering his second full season as a starter. And then Giolito, there's definitely questions there out of his, after his performance last year. Okay. And I think Crawford's going to have a good season, but I'm projecting that. And these other guys, Winkowski, maybe at this particular point in time, he's going to be the fifth starter. I don't want Hoke. I don't want um, Whitlock to be a starter. I'd much rather him be in the bullpen. But the thing is, and the aggravating part is you heard Raphael Devers, as I read you those quotes is, Everybody knew what the problem was. They needed a legitimate bona fide front end of the rotation guy, and the Red Sox haven't done anything. And it looks like they're going to have similar problems to the ones they had last year because they didn't address these things. And that's the thing that is aggravating to the fan base. And that's the thing we've been talking about all offseason. And clearly, the clubhouse and your best player are aggravated too. And the Red Sox ownership group and the front office, they should be embarrassed right now that their best player is saying this stuff publicly. When other teams, the Yankees are talking about how good they are. The Astros are talking about some of the additions they made, bringing in a guy like Josh Hader. Look at what the Dodgers are doing. And the Red Sox best player is trying to call out ownership and address some of the issues that the front office has had in terms of not giving this team what they need to have a fair chance to compete. You're not asking for the world. You're just asking for a fair opportunity to compete instead of pushing everything down the road and looking into the future this entire time. And signing a free agent... It doesn't affect your future that much. It's not like you're giving up prospects. I get you may have some, if you if it's Montgomery, hypothetically, some of the years at the end may not look good, but it's not affecting you as it pertains to your prospects. That, to me, I totally applaud Rafi for coming out and saying this publicly because we've been feeling it the whole time, and now the best player is saying it. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, you'll hear from Matt Hamachek, the director of the Dynasty. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. This is going to be a lot of fun. Joining us now, the director of the Dynasty, Matt Hamachek. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. How are you today? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, I mean, we can't wait to talk about this because the first two episodes are awesome. You're going to be joining us weekly to recap these episodes. So I just want to start with this. First of all, congratulations on the documentary. It's awesome. And how long did it take you guys to put this whole thing together? Because obviously it's 10 episodes long. You have so many different guys that you interviewed. How long of a project was this? So it started in 2021, sometime in the late spring, early summer. And then we really just wrapped it, you know, I'd say end of December or maybe like a, shortly thereafter, maybe like very beginning of the year, we were putting our finishing touches on the color and sound for ep 10 or something like that at that point. So, I mean, it's a, it's a lengthy process. And, and the thing that, you know, you learn very quickly when you're doing something like this is, and I think it applies to all projects, but in particular, this one is that you have to have an incredible team of people around you. And um, when it's this massive, you have to have multiple people who are sort of running different departments kind of in a way. And so I had great, great people uh, that were producing like Dallas Rexer, Jenna Millman, Chris James, um, and then uh, editorially, uh, you know, Dan Kohler, who's a longtime collaborator of mine, was basically running the the story and edit department. And so uh, you just have to have great people around you. So one of the things that stuck out to me is I felt like, especially in the first two episodes, everybody was excited to talk about this, especially Brady and Kraft. And one of my favorite guys in the first two episodes is Ty Law. I thought Ty Law was awesome. He's, he's very entertaining. But Belichick, he seems pretty stiff, even at the beginning of this whole thing. And it's interesting to me because like in the media, when he's doing these press conferences, there's a lot of people in the room, right? So it's not as awkward. But I got to imagine for you, like sitting across from him, and is that the impression you got? Was he like, just because he feels stiff to me, like everybody else seems like very energetic and whatnot. Bill, at times he can just like pause for a second. What was it like sitting across from him for so long? Well, it varies, right? I mean, that's the the truth is that, you know, when you're when you're talking to somebody, uh, the the length where how their interview goes, it is always it goes in waves, right? So what I mean by that is, you come in, you have a ton of energy, and then you know they people start to slow down a little bit, and then it's your job as you're talking to folks to like get them to pick back up and everything, and that's sort of always the way that it is. And there are times I think throughout the series where, for example, in one of the episodes that's coming up when uh, to both of them actually um when bill is talking both about <clears throat> getting uh getting lawyer malloy a room uh when they're on their way to super bowl 36 in new orleans as well <laughs> as when he's talking about um you know uh calling up randy moss for the first time i think bill really does sort of come alive there and you know he's like anybody else sometimes you they people are amped and sometimes they're not and that's sort of what happens when you're talking to somebody over the course of three hours no doubt. And then with Brady, so one of the fascinating things about the first two episodes is the footage from the apartment or the condo, I should say, that Brady was living in. I know he had this whole back and forth with Ty Law where Ty Law claims that Brady still owes him 150000 for that. Brady says, no, Ty actually fleeced me on the deal and ripped me off. But how do you guys come across all that footage of like young Brady hanging out with his roommates? So we were, we, one of the producers, Chris James had tracked down David Nugent because we were trying to find people who had actually lived with Brady. Because what you're, when you're, when you're taking a story like this, 
What you normally do in documentaries is you take very small stories that nobody's ever heard about before and people that nobody's ever heard about before and you amplify them and and make their stories big and exciting and and all of that. One of the, the thing that you're trying to do in a story like this, not trying to do, but I think what's helpful for the audience to understand and what we sort of hear in the interviews is everybody saying like, yeah, but this was before before the Super Bowl rings. This is this is Tom before the UGG boot you know, commercials and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, but you need to find the footage to be able to show it. Right. And so we were, we had tracked down and people to talk to. And so we had tracked down David Nugent, Chris James, our producer had done that. And, uh, David said that he would come to where we were filming interviews that week. I think we were in Boston at the time. And he said, by the way, I have this footage of us living in the condo. Would you guys at all be interested in taking a peek? I think this thing had been collecting dust since 2001 or whenever, or in 2000. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, we'd love to see it. And I, and I remember he gave, um, David Nugent, when he came and he sat down, I think he gave somebody a tape or, or a CD or something, some way to, to, to look at this stuff. And while the interview was going on, somebody was digitizing it. And then at the end of the interview came out, and 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 showed us some of the stuff and we were just like oh my gosh like this is this is tom like you've never seen him before right and and it it showed him you know when he was still at that point in time probably like the you know fourth string or third string quarterback in 2000 and then you know um and, and just painted an incredibly vivid picture of who he was so that when we find that kind of stuff that's that's the gold, and you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned the Ty Law and Tom conversation. I, I I have a feeling that Tom had heard that Ty had been saying that over the years because the second that I mentioned, like you know, by the way, Ty Law said that you, he thinks you still owe him, and and that's when Tom jumps in and goes, "Get that shit out of here, Ty," or whatever he says. <laughs> and he, he jumped on it right away, so it was uh, it was definitely something that I think he had he had heard about over the years from other people that Ty was going around talking to. Yeah, and one of the other things that stuck out to me about that footage and the stories about when Tom was living at that condo was he would get mad when they played Tecmo Bowl and he would like whip the controller off the wall, which I think was kind of an insight about like just sort of the competitor that Brady was because he yeah. was so angry just losing in a video game. And the other thing about that is talking about like hanging out with the guys where we think about Brady now and I know you guys get into it with the relationship with Guerrero and how health conscious he is. But back then, he was just kind of like one of the guys going out having beers, which is like a side of Tom that I think had been missing for like 15 years. I know like you can go back to like after he won in Tampa, he's celebrating on the boat and whatnot. But very rare that Tom's going to be like hanging out with the guys drinking beers. Well, I, I think that one of the things that we kept hearing over and over again from the people that we talked to was, you know, there's always this question of like, what makes Tom Brady great? Right. Is is it because he is the greatest thrower of the football of all time? Is it because of this? Is it because of that? The thing that we kept hearing over and over again was that it, a lot of it was sort of the intangibles, the things that he did to um, work with people, motivate people and create a sense of um, of team and all the things that, you know, don't really show up on game day necessarily. And this was an example of it where, you know, when Damian Woody says, you know, if you if you're good to the to the guys up front, then that's reciprocated on on Sundays, right? And so there was always stuff like that. But he was also also always simultaneously a 
the, one of the most competitive humans you could imagine. And I think Tom even alludes, like he doesn't like losing at darts. He doesn't like losing it, whatever. And, and that's just who he is. Um, but yeah, we, we heard that. I think, I think basically that was a stand in for probably 30 different stories. We heard about Tom just like that over the years on both, on both sides. Speaking of Damian Woody, did you see that he tweeted that his 12 year old son Got to like he didn't get to see him play obviously because he's only twelve years old and he thought it was so cool seeing his son watch that. Have you got a lot of like that type of reaction from some of the? Because I feel like especially like the early part, those guys that I don't want to say they feel underappreciated, but like the first part of the dynasty, you guys do a great job illustrating. Like it was built on the back of that defense, the Willie McGinnises, the Ty Laws, the Teddy Bruskies, and Damian Woody, of course, an offensive player. But it's gonna be pretty cool to see somebody tweet that about the doc. No, I think that was. One of, I think he just tweeted out last night, um, and Freddie uh, Shanahan, I, who's one of our editors, who's actually, we have, we were not a, we, the, the team of people that we had making this thing, it was largely, you know, not like, I don't want to say anybody were like Patriot haters. There were a couple Buffalo fans out there that might, I think might fall into that category who reluctantly said, ah, you're making me really like these guys now. Um, but, uh, but it was not all Patriot fans and, but Freddie Shanahan and, um, Nick Biagetti, two of our editors were just the most diehard Patriot fans. He sent, they sent me the, um, the Damian Woody tweet. And it's, when you see stuff like that, you just realize how lucky you are to make things like this because it's just so cool to, to see a father and son bonding over something like that. And, um, yeah, we heard from a bunch of guys and, um, you know, that stuff's really cool. That's one of the fun things about making a film like this or a series like this. Yeah, it's awesome. And then, so the Bledsoe Brady thing at the beginning, that was obviously the biggest sports talk radio here locally when it was going on. And uh, Bledsoe rather comes across as a really sympathetic character. We've had him on the pod, like what he went through. I mean, that was a really, I mean, the guy could have, I mean, that injury was severe and he didn't get his job back, of course. And I thought that you guys did a really good job of illustrating how difficult of a decision that was for Belichick, even though it seemed easy for Bill. That's not an easy decision, right? This is a guy that you just gave $100 million to. And even Scott Pioli says, hey, if we were wrong, we're probably done with the Patriots. Yeah. And Kraft actually admits that like, he had a conversation with Drew, essentially saying we can hold the coaching staff accountable if it doesn't work out. I was actually sort of surprised and good job by you guys to getting Kraft to admit that. I'm surprised that Kraft actually admitted that, right? Because that's like, that's the wrong side of history because obviously Brady was the guy. Now I know Ernie Adams described Bloodso at that time as like a wildebeest, like at that point in his career, they were worried about like how he couldn't move in the pocket and he was just sort of stiff and kind of hearing footsteps and all that. But what did you make of like that, that whole storyline of how Bill just stuck with Tom? Because after that, they never lost again that season. Right. I think one of the things that was really important to all of us making this thing at the outset um, was that we didn't want to make a series that was that that looked at this story from the perspective of people in 2024 looking back. And, and here's what I mean by that is an example would be if you're at the Jets game when Bledsoe gets taken out by Mo Lewis and and Bray, and then what we didn't show there is that shortly after he comes off the field, uh, Brady comes in, right? What we do is we stay with Bledsoe because he, at that time, is the guy, right? We haven't introduced Brady yet. 
Um, so if you were telling it from the perspective in 2024, what you would do is you'd have Tom come in and then there would be this sort of triumphant music of like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to be the greatest quarterback of all time. This is the moment when it all happens and rah, rah, and it would swell and all this kind of stuff. But that's not what it felt like then. And what we've kept trying to do in it, throughout this entire series is to say, what did it feel like in the moment when all these things were happening? So when you hear Robert Kraft saying those things and you hear Gilly saying, we felt like our, our butts were on the line, basically, I'm paraphrasing there. Um, and then even when you you hear uh, Kraft say the thing at the end of the first episode, when he talks about how like, you know, um, people were calling and saying what a mistake and I felt like Bill let us down. That isn't obviously the perspective of it, it was the greatest coaching decision in the history of coaching decisions. You could or you could argue, right? That's right. That, that's part of the arc of a 10 part series is that you see this thing and these decisions played out. But it's more uh, to me, it's always more interesting to make people feel like they're there in the room with the pressure of just, you know, it's it, you take like um, we cut to PTI clips in the, if, uh, you know, in the middle of this. And you can see Wilbon saying, you know, like this is one of the worst decisions, you know, like whatever. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but like you see these people reacting to it in real time. And again, it's just letting people feel like they're in the moment. I think to me, what I appreciate most about this is that the Bledsoe's were willing to come and be very candid and in a lot of ways vulnerable about a period of their life that I'm sure they don't enjoy reliving. And I know they've talked about it before. And part of my job, obviously, is to try to get people who have potentially talked about things in the past to talk about them as if they're doing it for the first time and re really taking them to those places and reliving those moments. And so um just appreciate how much time they gave us and how sort of honest they were and 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 i think that um that continues all into the next episode as well yeah it was really funny seeing the wilbon clips because he was just crushing belichick at the time which obviously i mean a lot of people can have bad takes i mean wilbon's been doing this forever so it's going to happen to a lot of people but that was just funny i didn't even know at the time that wilbon was like hating on the belichick decision and the other thing is the Drew story when Bledsoe is essentially saying, like, he's healthy, he's cleared, he calls up Belichick and he tells him, like, hey, I'm ready to go. And Bill's kind of like, OK, well, we'll see. Like, Bledsoe's basically relaying the story as I'm paraphrasing. It's like, OK, we'll see. We'll we'll see, like, what's going on. And Drew said, in retrospect, that's when I kind of realized, like, oh, like my 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 job may, may not be there for me, which I thought that just kind of shows you the cutthroat nature of Bill, too, where he's not just like, hey, I'm happy you're clear, Drew. This is awesome. He's like, yeah, we'll see. I think the thing that that shows is that. Look, this series in so many ways gets you into a discussion about. Um, decisions that are made over time, right? And. I think that what you see here is like we talked about, one of the greatest decisions that a coach has ever made in the history of the NFL and a realization of talent. And you hear Michael Holly and other people talk about the reasons why Bill and the coaching staff saw something in Tom and what they liked about him. And I think the other thing that's key to this, and, I, and I, I'm not sure if Bill felt this way too, but I also go back to that Vinatieri line where he talks about how not having a superstar on that team allowed everybody to have ownership over it. And I think that Tom was is somebody who 
And you see other instances of this throughout the entire series where Tom is, um, you know, Tom's the type of person who positions himself in a way where other people can feel like they, 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 they're not necessarily around somebody of his stature all the time. And so I think it was a collective choice to create this sort of team for a selfless environment. And I think that's sort of one of the, it's one of the, one of the things that I think made that season and a lot of the, the dynasty so special. Yeah. And it is interesting that Brady famously introduces himself to every rookie, like when he's just like getting new teammates, which is crazy. They're like, he's like, hey, I'm Tom Brady. They're like, yeah, uh, we, we, we kind of know who you are. Chris Long, so I interviewed Chris Long like a long time ago, and he told me that Brady did that to him. And he's like, yeah, Tom, I, I know who you are. So it's just kind of funny like that. Obviously, Tom registers really well with his teammates, even later on when he became, you know, the most famous athlete in the country at that particular point in time. But going back to the draft, right? Yeah. So Brady goes 199. And I think it was really interesting how you guys told it from the Patriots angle, right? Because you told how Brady Brady's talking about walking around the neighborhood with a baseball bat. Obviously, his family's really upset about it. Tom thought he was going to go in the second or the third round. And then the Patriots are just sort of sitting there. And I thought Scott Pioli did a really good job of sort of illustrating that they were looking at their board and they're like, we don't need a quarterback, but he's so far ahead of everybody on their board. So they must have had like a second or a third round grade on Tom. And they were just like, we're at 199. We're in the sixth round. We got to take him." You know, it's interesting. I think that uh, what you, the way you described it is as far as what Pioli said is entirely accurate. I think that part of, you know, similarly to when... Um, Brewski has a line where he says, like, anybody who's it's so full of shit, basically, who would say that, you know, Tom Brady was that great. I think that part of what Scott was also pointing out there is that anybody who says that they saw something in Tom and was like, oh, he's going to be anything like he ended up becoming was, you know, also full of shit. And there was, I think, a lot of probably people who who went around saying like, oh, in other teams and things like that, who probably went around saying like, oh, we saw something there. Um, and I think that that was just an example of, you know, however they had him ranked, he was clearly not 199 and they didn't need it. And it's like, you know, it is a situation where I don't think a lot of teams had three quarterbacks, but, and they were about to basically draft a fourth and whether you want to call it luck or, or, uh, the fact that they had him ranked higher or whatever you want to call it, it, it worked out. Um, and, uh, it, you know, that that draft room story was just a just an incredible moment. But like you said, it's like getting to talk to people like Pioli, like Ernie, who were actually in the room when those decisions were being made was just great. Well, it's amazing to me that the confidence that Tom had, because you guys illustrate like his Michigan career later on in the documentary. Yeah. It's the guy that was like losing out on his job. They were putting Drew Henson in and when he was at the collegiate level. And then he comes to the NFL. He's the fourth quarterback. And he tells the owner this is the best decision that he's ever made. Like, I would get that if it was Peyton Manning when he got drafted first overall, right? Or for it's like when Kevin Durant got drafted or even Jason Tatum got drafted to the Celtics third overall. But for Tom Brady, 199 to say that at that point in time, I think it sort of just like illustrates, even if everybody else didn't think Tom was going to be this great. Now, I'm sure Tom didn't think he was going to win seven Super Bowls and all these MVPs, but he was obviously very confident in himself, even though there were a lot of questions about him. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder sometimes if the people that are most successful, and I have no data to back this up, but um, are a combination of, of 
a lot of confidence and a lot of insecurity, right? Because there has to be something in you that drives you to want to get better and better and better all the time, right? And, and when you think about the things that people say in the series and also the things that you know we've heard over the years about Tom is that he is always trying to improve and always trying to get better at his craft, even after four or five, six Super Bowls. And so I, you know, people are complicated and it's not, it's not just this thing where it's like, he's just this, or he's just this. And I think that you're right. Like there is a combination of a guy who was overlooked, a guy who, you know, was overlooked at Michigan, a guy who didn't get drafted until 199, but still believed in himself. And maybe that's like the perfect combination of things that allows a person like Tom just to say, I believe in myself. And I'm going to get up every morning and do anything I can to to be better. Yeah. And you mentioned Ernie Adams. Yeah. So he's like this man of mystery to Patriots fans. We all know that he is employed or was employed by the organization, I should say. We all know that he was buddies with Bill. But of course, when you guys get into the snowball game, you were interviewing him. He's driving to his car. And I think it ironically snowed that day. And he mentions like it didn't snow the whole year back in 2001 when they beat the Raiders. I didn't remember that it, did. it was like a year that it didn't snow that much. But what was it like interviewing him? Because I feel like he's such an interesting character for this whole dynasty because everybody knows like he gives Bill advice on certain things, but we don't know exactly what he did. Yeah, I, look, I reached out to Ernie. He was probably one of the first people I reached out to. And I found an article about him from maybe his college scouting days or something like that. And and the article had a couple quotes from him and it was about his absolute passion for the game. And it talked about how he loves those three hours between the white lines, you know, and all, and all this stuff. And so I reached out to him and I asked him and then we met in person a couple of times. And then finally he, you know, agreed to sit down and interview for the series. And I think at that point in time, I had realized how lucky we were to be, you know, talking to this person who really had never talked to people on the record before, certainly not at length for any kind of thing on video. And so, um, I got to interview Ernie for 15 hours, I think, give or take over the course of multiple interviews. And he's just, he's fascinating. And his attention to detail and his stories, I, you know, everything, it, it was, it was just great. Yeah, he, he was, because like, we really don't know a lot about him. And he just, he had all these like different stories. And I know he'll feature later on in the documentary too, when you guys get in to Spygate. But one of the guys that stuck out to me in the early episodes was Vrabel. It feels like he was just like harsh on Brady. And obviously, like they're really good friends now to the point where in 2019, when Brady became a free agent, people thought that he may go play for Vrabel in Tennessee. Obviously, that didn't end up happening. But he felt like it felt like that linebacking court was obviously really close. But it felt mm -hmm. like Vrabel was kind of I know Brewski was sort of the leader of that group, group rather, but it felt like Vrabel and Tom early on kind of had this back and forth. Well, the guys talk about how important they felt that was to get Tom ready to play, right? And um, uh, yes, and and some and I'll put it this way: some guys definitely went into some details of the things that Vrabel actually said, and uh, even even for uh, you know the the rating system for uh, not that not that we not that we weren't allowed to put it in because it went past the rating system of TV or whatever, but just. Some of the things that people told us that Vrabel said were so inappropriate that it didn't even feel right to even put those things in the documentary. Um, but it was 
it was really fascinating. And I think like those stories are part of what shaped this thing. It was a team endeavor. And the, the thing that always struck me also was that all of those guys, they all pushed each other so much to be better at all times, right? And they would, you know, they would have these competitions for who could drink the most water and who could do this and who could do that. And it was always trying to find the edge, the thing that they could do to get just a little bit better. And I think there were so many special things that happened, you know, off the field and and not on game day that made the the made the dynasty what it was and and those guys were part of that for sure and in terms of the tuck rule game i heard uh you know what uh who is it Kraft says thank god for walt coleman brady says that he thought it was a fumble like everybody else when he was coming off the field but then brady also says it's not like we made up the effing rule right so yeah. Was, do you think they think like because of all the history that comes after this that people think for some reason like like they cheated the system to win that game by the rule? Like it felt like Brady was like, we didn't make up the rule. Well, I mean, I think there's I mean, if you even look at Twitter and the response to that game, there's Raider fans that are still talking about how they feel like they were robbed and everything. But I think the way that Tom describes it is perfectly right, that this was a rule that that it was interpreted correctly. And but also admitting that at the time it looked like a fumble and felt like a fumble. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's exactly right. But that, that to me, the snow game, you know, you have Ernie driving down and he talks about how the game felt like fate. And it was a, to me, it starts with that sentence and then ends on Brewski talking about how they felt like a team of destiny. And so what I always wanted to do was take this away from the, the X's and O's and make each of these things about something a little bit bigger. And to me, that snow game felt mystical. Like it, it felt like there was magic. Something was going on. I don't know what the what you can describe it any way you want to, but it it was interesting. Like I kept thinking about. Um, I know this is going to sound so silly, but in in the movie Big, when he goes up to the Zoltar machine for the first time and he's and he gets the ticket that that says, you know, we, your wish is granted or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this music that's playing in the background when he goes up there and when he encounters every time he later in the film, when he goes to try to make himself small again, the same music sort of appears and there's this and the Zoltar's eyes light up and his mouth starts moving and you hear this sort of whimsical, magical music in the background. And when I was meeting with the composer, uh, with Dan Kohler, the lead editor, um, I, we played him a variety of different songs as inspiration for the one that we landed on. But the Zoltar music from Big was one of those things that sort of captured this magic of what that game meant. Because to me, that was sort of them getting the ticket that said, your wish is granted. Now you're about to go on this journey and uh, it's going to take you all the way to the to the place that you've always wanted to be. And so that's how I've always looked at the snow game. Yeah, it's awesome. It's obviously one of the greatest memories any Patriots fan can have. And Vinatieri still had to hit, hit, hit the field goal too. And it's a great point on Brewski because it's like, oh, you get this team from California, hasn't snowed all year, and now it's snowing. All right, that is Matt Hamachek, the director of the Dynasty. Matt, thank you so much for the time. Look forward to talking again. And I know we're going to be getting into Spygate and all that coming up as well. So thank you so much, Matt. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah, the next episode will be about um, the episode three is about super, the the run up to Super Bowl thirty six, 
Uh, and then the next episode for Patriots fans, I think, um, unfortunately will be a somewhat painful one, but an important <laughs> one. Um, and again, all of these things are about trying to be about things that are much larger than what they are about. And I would describe episode four as almost biblical in its nature. Uh, there's a lot of talk about God and the devil and all sorts of things in there. And, um, I look forward to talking about it next week. Yeah, and I know Patriots fans do too. This is kind of like a game for us now. People are talking about the episodes after they come out, which is pretty awesome. Matt, thanks for the time. All right, thank you. Talk to you soon. Get buckets with your first bet on FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 bet. All right, and I'm looking at the Celts coming out of the break, taking on the Bulls on Thursday night. I'll take the Celtics on the money line. How about Tatum for 25 points? Kristaps Porzingis for 20 points and Tatum for eight rebounds. That's 150 bucks back if your bet doesn't win. Bet on all your favorite NBA players and teams with quick bets, live same game parlays, exclusive props, and more. Just visit fanduel.com slash pike and shoot your shot. FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus in presidents like states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Matt Hamachek. Can't wait to continue to talk to him about this documentary and the next two episodes. Absolutely insane. So these are episodes that you're definitely going to want to watch. The first two are awesome. Then we start to get into some more of the juicy details with the organization. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. And we'll chat with Matt next week about those two episodes as well. Okay, I did want to get to some news with the Patriots. Matthew Slater announced that he's retiring. And you look at his career, five times first team All-Pro, three times second team All-Pro, 10 Pro Bowls. And my former employer, or at my former employer, I interviewed him a couple of times. Just an awesome guy has done a ton in the community. And one of the things that sticks out to me about Slater is it's really difficult to carve out a role for that long. As long as he was able to be one of the best, even going back to this past season, one of the best special teamers in the NFL. It's just rare to see a guy do that. Like a lot of times we'll see a guy be on special teams and eventually he starts becoming one of your receivers, right? With Slater, he just hung on to this job for so long as one of the premier gunners in the league. And then the other thing you think about with Slater is the fact that he was a real leader on this team. That's a rare thing to have a guy that's a special teamer to be one of your big time leaders on the team. Like we think about the quarterback, we think of maybe an offensive lineman like a center like Kelsey is for or was for the Eagles. You think about some of the defensive players like we we're talking about with Matt, we we're talking about Teddy Bruschi early on in his career as being one of the leaders of the team. Devin McCourty in the second dynasty as the safety being one of the leaders. But it's very rare to see a special teamer be that leader for the team. But I think that tells you the respect that the players had for what Matthew Slater was able to do for this team. And it's just impressive, their career that he had. And you can make an argument, Belichick has on multiple occasions, that he's the best special teams player ever. Now, we'll see if that gets him into the Hall of Fame as just a core special teams player. But if you are going to put special team players in the NFL Hall of Fame, then or Pro Football Hall of Fame, I should say, then Slater definitely deserves consideration. And I know you look through the era of football and you say, hey, he wasn't one of the best players at his particular point in time. Yeah, but he was one of the best special teamers. So as a specialist, he really deserves a lot of consideration, especially considering how long he did it. And like I said, 
three-time second-team All-Pro, but a five-time first-team All-Pro and a 10-time Pro Bowler. Like, that's a pretty impressive resume. I know it's one specific skill, but you can make that argument that based on what he did, he should be in the Hall of Fame if you're putting in special teamers. Okay, now, after talking with Matt, I was also thinking about the fact that this dynasty now seems so far away, and now the Patriots are in this position where they can take their next quarterback in the draft, right? So the betting market to me right now is fascinating. And I had this conversation with the boss, Bill Simmons, over text last week. And so when you look at sort of the odds that FanDuel has right now, so nobody is really questioning whether or not Caleb Williams is going to go number one, even though we've heard stuff. Could they possibly hold on to fields? I just don't see that becoming really a thing. They're Caleb Williams. Even if the Bears trade the pick, Caleb Williams is going to go number one. The only person that I've heard that has an argument that somebody else should go number one in terms of a quarterback, not like a position player, like because people are making the argument for Marvin Harrison Jr. Tim Hasselbeck said that he thinks Drake May is the best quarterback in the draft. He's the first person that I've heard actually make that claim that he thinks that way. But anyway, so my point being is, if you look at what FanDuel has right now, they have Caleb Williams minus 1,500 to go first. Drake May is second at plus 1,000. Jaden Daniels is at plus 2,500, okay? So that basically tells you that Caleb Williams is going number one, right? And if Caleb Williams doesn't go number one, maybe it's Marvin Harrison Jr. because some team trades up and just takes the receiver, or maybe the reason Marvin Harrison for number one is plus, what is he at? He's at, he's he's right ahead of Jaden Daniels in terms of the odds. Maybe part of that is just the fact that, hey, if the Bears really don't go quarterback, then that's why they put that in there, just to sort of protect themselves. But if you look at number two, Drake May is at minus 140 to go number two, and Jaden Daniels at plus 145. Then you look at the number three overall pick. Jaden Daniels on FanDuel is at plus 160. May is at plus 190. So the gap between May and Daniels for the second and the third pick isn't very wide at all, right? And we look at the combine, and one of the points that Bill made on his podcast is, And I've talked about it too, Jaden Daniels at the actual NFL Combine if he runs the 40. So if you look at the record for quarterbacks, Vic is 4.33. And then in terms of guys that are actually relevant in the NFL, Robert Griffin III was at 4.41. Those are like the fastest guys at the Combine in terms of quarterbacks that actually played. So, and Vic has the record for quarterbacks. If Daniels threatens what Vic ran, does Washington fall in love with him based on Sort of, then you put on the film and you see him running away from defenders at the collegiate level. We've talked about on the pod how great his numbers were. But then I started to think about, okay, look at this Washington organization, right? So you now have Adam Peters as the general manager, or whatever his title is. He's running the football operations. He comes from San Francisco. He just works with Kyle Shanahan. Okay. Their head coach, surprisingly, not many people expected it, it's Dan Quinn who he just came from Dallas, but prior to that, we all know he was the head coach in Atlanta. Well, he works with Shanahan. Shanahan was his offensive coordinator in Atlanta. Okay, then you look at Cliff Kingsbury as the offensive coordinator. So Cliff Kingsbury, of course, just came from USC after coaching in Arizona. And after before that, he was the coach of Texas Tech. He coached Pat Mahomes. So Peters was in San Francisco for Trey Lance the super athlete that didn't work out. And I'm not comparing Trey Lance to Jaden Daniels. I'm just sort of pointing these things out here in terms of the prototype they may be looking for. Quinn had success 
in Atlanta with a traditional pocket passer in Matt Ryan running Kyle Shanahan's system. Okay, so then you look at Kingsbury, coached Mahomes, as we said, at the collegiate level. He coached Murray in Arizona, and then he coached Caleb Williams last year at USC as he was some sort of offensive advisor, whatever his title technically was, because Lincoln Riley was calling the plays. But if you look at it, Murray only had the one big running year with Cliff Kingsbury, and a lot of that was scrambling, right? In 20, he was at what, 30, in 2021, 2022, he's at 38 yards a game and 30 yards a game in terms of rushing. So it wasn't like they featured Kyler Murray in the running game a lot. A lot of that was scrambling. Now, yes, occasionally he would keep it and take off, but it wasn't like, he wasn't one of these guys like, for example, Jalen Hurts, who runs a lot. Lamar Jackson, who runs a lot. That wasn't sort of the ecosystem of Cliff Kingsbury's offense with Kyler Murray. And if you look at Drake May, he has the freaky arm, like, of course, a lot of these guys that Cliff Kingsbury has coached in terms of the Pat Mahomeses of the world, right? And Caleb Williams last year at the collegiate level. And I'm not saying Cliff Kingsbury is going to have the say here. I'm just pointing out sort of the guys that this coaching staff and the front office and Adam Peters has coached. And the other thing I would look at in terms of this Daniels will turn 24 in December of next year. May does not turn 22 until right before the season. So the other thing about Drake May is we knew coming into the season that he was a top three pick and most people considered him to be the number two pick in the draft. Daniels came onto the scene late, right? Where he was pretty good two seasons ago at LSU, but this is his fifth year this past season at LSU. May was awesome two years ago when he had the 38 TDs, the seven interceptions, when his team was competent. This past season, his team was bad, right? So first year, like if you look at it in terms of Drake May, first year as a starter at the college level, this guy was already really good. With Jaden Daniels, it took him a long time to get to that point, and it took him until really to be a guy that would be considered in the top five. It took him until this past season, his fifth year at the collegiate level, on a very talented LSU team who they're going to have neighbors who's going to go somewhere in the top 10 as well, if not the top 10 in the top 15, is one of the best receivers in this group. So when you look at the guys that can sort of throw from these crazy arm angles, Mahomes, Stafford recently, who won a Super Bowl, Josh Allen, Herbert, that seems more like what Drake May could be. Now, there's no guarantee, obviously, like we see how many misses there are, but it seems like that prototype would fit what the Washington coaching staff was looking for. And if you think about it from Adam Peters' perspective, would he take the guy that's the more talented thrower of the football in Drake May than the super athlete? And by the way, Drake May is actually a really good athlete too. But the reason I point that out is because they were just burned by a quarterback that was projected to be the super athlete in the NFL and Trey Lance. And like I'm saying, I'm not comparing the players. I'm not comparing what they did at the college level compared to each other. I'm just pointing out in terms of that type of prototype, the running quarterback did really hurt the San Francisco 49ers, although they recovered pretty well with Brock Purdy. So if Adam Peters looks at this and says, well, hold on, we can run the type of system we were running in San Francisco, right? The Shanahan style offense. That's a lot of what they want to do is run something like, why wouldn't you want to take a lot of the stuff you did in San Francisco? If we can run that with a much more talented version than Brock Purdy, in Drake May, this makes a lot of sense, and the fact that he's younger, and the fact that he was the high-profile player for a longer period of time, that may push them in that direction. With Jaden Daniels, the exceptional speed, and he's a great deep ball thrower, similar to Lamar Jackson, really, but the running ability, the deep ball throwing, you think about guys like Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts can do it, Justin Fields, really only the running portion has not been a great passer at the NFL level, 
Allen is really interesting because Allen's in both these categories, can throw from all the crazy arm angles, has the super arm, but he's also heavily involved in the running game as well. But based on who Washington's organization will be looking at, I believe they're going to leave lean Drake May, even if we see this whole thing with Jaden Daniels at the Combine where he's setting things on fire and he's incredible and he looks awesome. I still think that they're going to look at, okay, we've seen a lot of versions of Drake May be successful in the NFL. The guys with crazy strong arms and the guys, he has the size, not to say that Jaden Daniels is small, but Drake May is a big dude, 6'5", over 220. I just feel like they are going to fall in love with Drake May in the process rather than Jaden Daniels based on sort of their past success. Like even a guy like Dan Quinn can look at it and say, okay, this is a way more talented version than Matt Ryan. Like he can run unlike Matt Ryan. He has a crazy arm like Matt Ryan, but he can also make all the traditional throws as well. So I think Washington is actually going to fall in love with Drake May in this process. So the other thing that is going to be interesting here from a Patriots perspective They're going to have to decide because this is going to go down to the wire with Washington. I don't think they're going to basically let it out there either way, which way they're leaning. Right now, as you can see, Vegas doesn't even know which way they're leaning. That's why the odds are so close between Drake May and Jaden Daniels. So I think this is going to go down to the wire to the point where when we get to draft day, we're not going to know who's going to be available for the Patriots at number three. I really do truly believe that it's going to take that long. So the Patriots basically... When they're getting ready for this draft process, they have to be willing to say, we're willing to go in either direction because it's different offenses depending on who the quarterback is. If it's Jaden Daniels, and look, Drake May can run too, but not like Jaden Daniels. So if Jaden Daniels is the guy, you're going to want to feature a lot of quarterback runs in the offense. And it would be stupid not to because we've seen how successful the running quarterback can be at the NFL level. So I'm really interested to see, do they like both guys? Because that's the fascinating part for the Patriots. I do. I like Drake May a lot. I like Jaden Daniels. You heard me talking the other day with Hench about the fact that I think Jaden Daniels can sort of, his floor can be higher right away because the running game can sort of help this offense when if you look at it, they don't have a lot of weapons right now. I would like either one of these guys. I just want it to be a quarterback, either Drake May or Jaden Daniels. But they're not exact, they're not very similar quarterbacks. So would the Patriots be okay with either one of these guys, which I think is going to be sort of the fascinating thing because we've seen both versions of these type of players have success, whether it's the crazy arm guy that's got all the skills that came from a school that wasn't very good. Like you look, and I'm not comparing Mahomes to Drake May, but Mahomes goes to Texas Tech. He puts up crazy numbers. They're not really good, right? And you start to think about it like Josh Allen went to Wyoming, but we've also seen the high profile guys. Lamar Jackson won a Heisman. So we've seen all different types of quarterbacks sort of have success at the NFL level. But the question is, are you okay with either one of these guys? Because if you're not okay with either one of these guys, right? Say the Patriots are in a position where they only like Jaden Daniels or they only like Drake May, whatever it is. And say, if they only like Jaden Daniels and he goes second, which I think that's going to be Drake May, as I just illustrated. But say that's the case. Well, then you got to get off the number three pick. Now, I hope that's not the case. I hope they like both of them. But if you don't like one of the quarterbacks and Jaden Daniels falls to you and you don't like him or Drake May falls to you and you don't like him, you got to be ready to trade the pick. And that's the interesting component to this with the Patriots where I feel like you're going to be have to work. You're going to have to work on a lot of stuff pre-draft, right? Where it's like, okay, if you don't know what Washington's going to do, but you don't like, say, Drake May and your pick is number three, you're going to have to talk to teams before the draft like, hey, if this guy falls, like, we, we, we don't want him like that. And so it's going to be more difficult for the Patriots. I just hope they like both quarterbacks because I think this makes this whole process a lot easier.
Okay, uh, one other thing I just want to mention on the Bruins real quick. They needed that win badly on President's Day. That's only their second win post-All-Star break. And of course, they beat Vancouver the second game after the break. Awesome. Awesome just to get out of that with a win because the homestand, I mean, you look at it now, what was it, 2-3-2, two, and two, they finish on that homestand and it felt like they were going to lose that game. I mean, less than two minutes left, McAvoy has the unbelievable pass to Pasternak where you think he's going to shoot it, Pasta does what he does and he finishes and then it goes into nine rounds in the shootout. McAvoy, of course, ends up with the winner and Swayman gets the save after that. So they end up winning that game, but the Bruins, they desperately needed that win. This has been an extended struggling streak for this Bruins team and you think now, they go to Edmonton on Wednesday night. Then they're at Calgary, they're at Vancouver, they're at Seattle. So they head out west before home against Vegas. And I thought the homestand would, of course, be a lot better for the Bruins than the way that it went. But we'll see if they can get back on track on the road. And hopefully that win on Monday is something that gets them going in the right direction. All right, coming up next, we'll bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, Brian. I'm real good. I enjoyed your, your talk with Matt. I'm really excited for episodes three and four. Yeah, the documentary is awesome, man. Yeah. And I, I'm not just saying that because it's a Patriots documentary. It really is fun. Like, I've talked to people from other parts of the country that aren't Patriots fans that are like, this is fucking awesome, right? Like, it's awesome for us as Patriots fans. But I also think for people that aren't Patriots fans, like learning some of the stuff that they haven't been familiar with in the past, right? Like, it's pretty crazy, some of the stories. And I'll tell you this, like, after the first two episodes... It only gets better. Like the first two nice. episodes are awesome, but it only gets better because obviously as we get further on in the dynasty, there's more controversy. And as Matt pointed out, like they, the next two episodes, they do the lead up to the Super Bowl against the Rams, which there's a decision that Bill has to make during that yep. period. I think people can put two and two together there, what that decision is. And then they kind of flip forward to 2007 when the Patriots trade for Randy Moss and they'll get into that and sort of, the controversy that was going on there. And I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say what the controversy was in 2007. <laughs> so the next two episodes are really good. And of course, when they get later on in the dynasty too, the whole Bill Brady dynamic, I think is fascinating. So I think they did a really good job and it's, it's, it's an awesome documentary. Okay, Jamie, let's get to a couple of emails here. That email address is off the pike at gmail.com. 
All righty, Brian. This is from Jeff in Florida. Jeff's talking some C's. Um, Jeff writes, I hear the same refrain week after week from NBA pundits that only reminds me that the national guys don't want a lot, don't watch a lot of basketball. And to get real insight on your favorite team, you have to follow guys like you. Thanks for your insightful, well-researched commentary. Case in point, I keep hearing that the Drew acquisition replaced Marcus Smart when the, when this is not really the case. You appreciate how Brad Stevens reshuffled and improved the roster, or you really have to look at all the moves together. Moving Smart allowed Derek White to replace and upgrade Smart's position. Not true. Drew replaced and upgraded Grant Williams' position, while Chris Upps Porzingis upgraded Al Horford. Horford then replaced and upgraded Rob Williams. Uh, brilliant stuff by Brad Stevens there, and he deserves a lot of credit for it. And uh, he just mentions one of the points. is off topic. I think we should also stop complaining about the competitiveness of the All-Star game. It is what it is. It's not supposed to be a playoff game. It's just fun like the Harlem Globetrotters. Enjoy it. What do you make of those points? Okay, a couple of things there. I appreciate the kind words. And I'll address the All-Star game first, and then I'll get back to the Celtics point. So I think the reason people say that about the All-Star game, I'm sort of with them. Like, I'm in acceptance phase. I yeah. talked about this the other day with Bontep, so I think it's embarrassing. It's not a very competitive game, but this is where we're at. Like, so I don't get aggravated, like, as much no. as other people do, where they're so pissed off that the All-Star game stinks, right? It felt like... I mean, Adam, even Adam Silver was like, he was pissed. You, yeah, it's like you guys scored <laughs> the most points. He did, you guys scored 200. He didn't even say you won the game. Right. So I get it. Like why fan, like some fans are frustrated. I get his point that like this is sort of I just kind of accept it. But it is kind of crazy. Like what I've seen the past couple of days, like going back, like on social media, you see sort of the old all star games and how competitive they were like Stefan Marbury going back and forth with Kobe. I remember Dwayne mm -hmm. Wade like hard filed Kobe. So I understand sort of why people would be upset when it comes to that sort of stuff, but I thought Bonteps brought up a good point the other day. Celtics fans, we shouldn't be mad because Kemba was never the same player after he played too many <laughs> minutes in the All-Star game, right? Like that was that was a great point yeah. by him, but I can't get too worked up about it because I know what it is. And maybe that's just me giving up on it, but I kind of know what it is at this point in time. So I, I think it's embarrassing. Like, I don't think it's very, I don't think it's an entertaining product. So I think that's kind of stupid where it's like guys are just running up and down the court, but I'm not watching it super intensely anymore because I know I'm not going to get a good product. Like I'll have it on. And I was watching uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm the other night while it's on <laughs> because I'm like, all right, yeah. I'm going to check on this. Like, I remember I'm watching before Curb came on, I was watching, I forget what I had on the bottom TV, but on the top TV, I had the game on. And then I see, oh, they're going to interview Jason Tatum. So I put on the volume when they're interviewing Jason Tatum, but I'm not going to be super invested in yeah. the game. I'm just going to have it on as sort of in the background. I mean, that's, that's just where I'm at. Okay. So, I mean, do you agree or are you mad about the all-star? I wasn't mad. I'm, I mean, no, I'm, I'm totally in the same, but I never paid it that much attention. I think for me, it is what it is. I think the thing that I'm more concerned about is like the day before the all-star weekend festivities. I think they need to work on that stuff, which is I feel like salvageable and it's That's just a good like, point. you know, it's like the, like I think you said, I think a lot of people pointed out this year, for some reason it felt like a breaking point with the dunk contest where it's like, what are we watching here? Like how many times do I need to see like a little guy jump over a big guy or something like that? Like they need to figure out some way to fix that because that is fixable. And the same thing with three point contests. It's like, there's too many rounds. I thought, uh, Bontemps mentioned, I agree with them that the Sabrina versus Steph thing was the most interesting part of the weekend. So I think they need to focus maybe a bit more on that. And yeah, maybe just let the game go. Or like you said, take it for what it is. Yeah, there's a couple things like that. Like they need people to agree that are stars to do the dunk contest. And obviously Jalen Brown was the only one that wanted to do it that was a star. 
Right. And I think then, you should have to be in the all-star game. How about that? How about no G leaguers and only all-stars? Well, I don't think you're going to be able to fill the thing. If only it's four. only all-stars. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to get four all-stars. Like, I don't what even if, know. Have yeah. we ever, like, when's the last time we got four all-stars, you know, like when's the last time we got three, but isn't that right. crazy, Brian, that that's too much to ask for four guys. Come on. Yeah. I mean, so I've kind of, I've sort of given up on the dunk contest. Like when Gordon and Levine were going back and forth, that was awesome. But I don't think we're ever going to get, yeah, great dunk con. Like every once in a while, we may get a great one, right? But it, I'm I'm over the G League thing. I McClung's a great dunker. I'm sorry, he's not an NBA player. Like I don't yeah. want to watch him in the dunk contest. And then the other component to this is, I used to like the skills competition when I first started, but the teams. Why do we need the teams? I used to like it when it was just the player, like one player, the team, and like Anthony Edwards, like shooting lefty. Like if I mean, I, I, I I'm I'm done with that. But yeah. So anyway, that's my All Star game take in terms of. The Celtics stuff. So I get the point in terms of basically it was Derek White taking over Marcus's spot, which I think the most important thing here is, remember, we talked about this all the time in the pod last year. Why is Smart closing and Derek White's on the bench? Like Derek White has been great. So he does have a bigger role because he's taken over like Smart's ball handling. But to Joe Mazzulla's defense, you can't really have Marcus doing what Derek White did last year because you can't have Marcus Smart off the ball. Like Marcus can't be like in the corner getting ready to take a shot, right? Or in the slot getting ready to take a shot because then the help defense is just going to go that way, right? So like they kind of had to have Marcus Smart on the ball or as a screener. But I think this just getting rid of Marcus, I I shouldn't say it that way, trading Marcus for Porzingis just put everybody sort of in a better place. Mm -hmm. And then I understand his point because Drew came in after that. But like, Ideally, what Marcus would be on this team, if say he was on it, would be like the fifth option, like Drew Holiday, right? Marcus saw himself as a bigger option, so I think that's the thing is where Drew, and I think part of it was Drew, is he's making twenty five million dollars. He's already <laughs> won a championship. He was pissed at the Bucks that he got traded to Portland, right? I mean, he talked about the fact that he wanted, and his wife talked about it. They wanted a bigger heads up, and he lands right in like the perfect situation where he can go up and beat his former team in a potential playoff series, and he's playing on one of the best teams. So I think that, and to the Brad thing, obviously, Brad's been incredible. I mean, I I never thought that he'd be a better GM than he was a coach. Now, maybe part of that is being a coach and seeing sort of the issues you had as a coach, maybe some of the issues you thought you had with your roster. And this is not a shot at Danny. Danny's one of the great executives in the history of the NBA. I mean, getting Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, getting all those picks, basically rebuilt this organization. Now, the Nets were idiotic at that time, but still, Danny Ainge deserves a ton of credit because not only did he just get the picks, he nailed the picks. Yeah, like Jalen, he, really he, nailed, nailed, he nailed that pick with Jalen Brown. He nailed that pick with Jason Tatum, and he got another asset in return by moving down to three. Crazy. But my, yeah, my big point with that is just circling back to Brad here. For Brad to be like, I thought when he was coaching, I thought he was easily a top five coach in the NBA. I thought there were years where he was one of the best coaches in the NBA, right? I mean, you think at the end there was basically Spolstra, Nick Nurse was really good by the time like Brad was getting close to the end. But Brad was really good. Like Steve Kerr has talked about on multiple occasions that he's ripped off after timeout plays from Brad Stevens. Like Brad was a great coach. And for him to actually be better in this role as an executive, it's pretty damn impressive what Brad's been able to do, basically putting together the perfect team for his stars and really his star player Jason Tatum to win a championship um crazy idea Brian and no shade Joe Missoula but you know we've been talking about Bill Law with Dynasty why can't he do both Brad why can't be coach and GM why is it so out of the question I don't know I think that'd be tough 
I mean, Pat Riley did it for a while. Doc did it with the Clippers. It was horrible. I guess <laughs> technically, like, some coaches have had the... Like, Stan Van Gundy had the power when he was in Detroit. That was a mess. And Popovich has R.C. Buford. He right. has final say there. Like, we've seen it before. I, I feel like that's an awfully tough job. Like, nobody else in the NFL has that job that Bill had now. Now, like, but, certain coaches have, like, final personnel power, I guess, technically. Oh, like Harbaugh. They have a G- I guess they're getting a GM, actually, right? Yeah, they have. They, they hired a guy from the Ravens, but... Yeah, like, like I think technically Shanahan has final say in San Francisco, but of course they have like Lynch, the right? And, yeah, I think it's just tough to do both jobs. I, I and that's what's incredible to me about Bill is like you're in a room negotiating with the player and the player's agent. In some cases, it's just the agent, but you're negotiating with the agent about the player's contract, and then you got to see the player like two hours later totally. in practice. Like that's, that's just bizarre. that's awkward. Yeah, I hear you. I mean. You definitely felt, at least in the doc, you know, Peely is helping at the first the first stage of the dynasty, but he did do it quite well for a good a good solid ten year window where it went worked out well. But right, well, kind. and and like as it went on, the guy that was like say second to Belichick in command, like after Peely, lesser and lesser as like their true role, like right, right. like because Peely came in early with Bill, so yeah, yeah established. I do remember like we talked about it on the pod when. The email situation first occurred, like, hey, could Brad just come down and coach? And Brad, like, was against it at that point in time. So, yeah, it sounded like he was pretty burnt out. And that's yeah, why he was. He, he was definitely out. burnt out. Yeah. And this right. is obviously a much better role. Well, speaking of uh, moves Brad could or should make, this is from Dave in North Carolina. Uh, Dave writes, it appears to me that without Jalen Brown in the lineup, the Celtics move the ball better and have better spacing and are much more team oriented. Far less hero ball. JB is an undeni- is an undeniable singular talent, but if and when I had the chance, I would still offload him for an outside three-point sniper and a rugged interior defender, big man, and free up a ton of salary cap space. What do you think? Well, it's interesting because Jalen, and there was a stretch this season where he was coming out good in the impact metrics. Now, the numbers with Jalen on the court are still really good. They're outscore teams by more than seven points per 100 possessions. But with Jalen off the court, they outscore teams by more than 14 points per 100 possessions. So it actually goes up by seven points per 100 Mm. possessions compared to Jalen on the court than Jalen off the court. The thing that's going to be interesting about this is if you're asking me to predict, does Jalen finish out the whole Supermax contract with the Celtics? I doubt it. But here's the thing, though. They've extended Porzingis. They have to get Derek White extended. That price is only going up. Drew Holiday is going to need an extension, and Drew's in his mid-30s. Are you extending Drew? So you got to decide which guys you're keeping around, right? And with Jalen, like, you have to figure out, like, somebody that's going to be around for a long period of time if you're trading yeah. Jalen Brown away. Because, look, I'm not saying he's, and obviously he has some flaws in his game, but he's still pretty damn good. So you're not dumping his salary, right? And when you become he's a young, second- too. Yeah, and when you, you become a second apron team now with like the new rules of the CBA, these type of trades become more difficult because you can't accumulate all these different salaries. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a very expensive team in short order. That's why this year is so important in terms of sort of figuring out what this team is, like if this team wins a championship or not, those decisions become a little bit more easier because it's like, oh, well, you have the banner. You got the banner up there now. Like if you don't win it, then those decisions are like become way more difficult because it's like, yeah, we still haven't won the championship, right? But I would say ultimately, I think at some point, and I'm not saying it's going to be next year or the year after that, I don't think Jalen finishes the contract with the Celtics. Now, the only thing is you can't wait too long with Jalen because like 
if you look at him now in terms of his age, I still think this is, even though it's a super max, a lot of guys are getting big time contracts now in terms of the money, but Jalen's age at this point is still like, he's still got a lot of prime years left. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, look, we might look back after they flame out against the heat again this year and say, wow, they should have changed the the formula, changed the chemistry. But for me, it's like, I want to see what this specific team does in the playoffs. And then, you know, cause I think they got a good shot. So I want to see if this works. And I think, like you said, once you get a title, first of all, you have the title, so you can get that monkey off your back. But two, it's like, well, then you know that formula works. And in some ways, it makes your life easier. You're like, well, why don't we just run this back, basically, and tinker along the edges? So um, maybe it's uh, a bit obvious to say, but it'll it'll depend a lot on what happens in the playoffs this year. Yeah, it's and look, with Jalen, there is going to be a game where Jalen wins you because of his shot making. Like Jalen has done that before. He has this incredible shooting performance. The Celtics win. There's probably also going to be a game that he plays where he makes you rip your hair out because he turns the <laughs> ball over or something yeah. along those lines. But here's the thing about the, uh, the Celtics right now. FanDuel has him as plus 230 to win the, to championship. Win the championship. That's like yeah. the what the and best the best I've seen, I think, right? Yeah, Denver is plus 440. The Clippers are plus 500. The reason for this is just because, and we had this conversation with Bontemps the other day, is the West is so much more stacked than the East right now. Right, beat each other up. Yeah, we were going through trying to figure out who's the biggest competition to the Celtics in the Eastern Conference. Like, And what happened to Denver last year is Denver got a really good draw. Now, Minnesota was a difficult series for them, but they cruised through the playoffs. And if the Celtics can just get there and take care of business and not let Trey Young come in and go nuts against them and get there quicker, they put themselves in a much better position where, hey, they're not worn down against the Warriors. They're not worn down against the Heat because they have to go seven against Philly. They had to go six against Atlanta. And that's not an excuse. But hey, if you play fewer games, maybe Jason Tatum doesn't twist his ankle in game seven because he didn't need game seven. I totally I just I mean, look, things might be different this year. They have Porzingis, but I just have such a hard time envisioning in my head them taking care of all these series in four or five games. You know what I mean? Like, do you, do you see that really happening? Them just cruising to the finals? I kind of am starting to see it because okay, just just like how the matchups go. And look, this is all yeah. knock on wood, contingent right. on health, mainly with Porzingis health. I kind of see it. Like, if you look at the bottom of the Eastern Conference right now, in terms of the teams, like the Celtics are, it would be shocking if they didn't get the one seed with the standings yeah, where they're at right now. For sure. But you look at the play-in teams, it's Miami and Orlando 7-8 right now, and then you have Chicago Atlanta. Obviously, Miami is Miami, but Orlando, and I know this, the Celtics have had a difficult time with they Orlando have. in the past. They don't score enough. They don't score enough to be able to compete with the Celtics in a series. And then Chicago and Atlanta, I know Atlanta did its thing last year, but we've seen that matchup this year. Atlanta is not as good as they were last year. At least I don't feel that way. I think Trey Young's an awesome player, and I have much more respect for him after last year. I didn't... I. I was not a big Trey Young guy until that series last year. Yeah, you he's look at the bo- Yeah, so you look at the bottom of the conference. It's just you should win that series relatively easily. And then you look at sort of the middle group here with four and five. You get the, the Knicks. That's a difficult one. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to. It's crazy to me that Milwaukee's still in third after the way they've played. Like they've terrible. been terrible yeah. with Doc. They're three and seven or whatever. And there's still a game and a half in front of the Knicks. Like as bad as Adrian Griffin was as like a defensive coach and as much as it appeared like he didn't have the trust of the players, they still are third in the Eastern Conference as we're coming out of the All-Star break. I honestly rather play Cleveland than New York to be on in the second round. But Cleveland, it looks like they're going to get the two seed. They have two and a half game lead on Milwaukee right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess there's always a chance that Milwaukee figures it out, but time is time is running short, I guess. And I, I hope you're right, Brian. I, I I will believe it when I see it in terms of them having a nice, easy, breezy playoff run. But um, I I will at least admit that things do look a bit different this year. So that's it's a possibility. Yeah, and I know a lot of it is just like the scars that we've had in the past. Yeah. But the one thing is they have a couple of things that they didn't have in the past. They have Definitely. a knockdown shooter in Drew Holiday, and more importantly, they have a guy that can score in the post with relative ease in Kristaps Porzingis. And the thing they do so well with Porzingis, and the reason right now he's the most efficient post-up guy in the NBA, is his post-ups are coming against small players. Like, they're mismatches. Nice. When they get mismatches, that's when they go to the post. Same thing with Tatum. You don't see Tatum posting up like Jonathan Isaac, who's a great defender, right? He's not going to be posting up OG Ananobi. It's going to be, oh, shit, Tatum has Jalen Brunson on him in a, cro- a cross match. Let's get it to Tatum. And mm-hmm. the Celtics have done a really good job, and Missoula deserves credit for this, for when that happens, boom, we're not fucking around. Get yeah. it there. Because even if the double comes, all right, then the defense is in a blender. Then Tatum's kicking it right out to a guy in the wing. Either that guy's going to have an open shot or the next pass is going to lead to an open shot. So I think they've done a really good job hunting out mismatches. Uh, Bontemps brought up the other day where against the Nets, they were just going after Cam Thomas, right? Like that's not something you'd ordinarily do in the regular season. But Joe, to his credit, and this is what I got to remember when I'm watching these games all the time, like what what is this for, right? Because the Celtics have such a big lead. They're going after Cam Thomas because this is something they're going to do in the playoffs. Not against the Nets, they're not going to be there. But when they're playing a team like say the Bucks that have inferior defenders, the Dame Lillards of the world, they're going to go at that guy, right? Like that that's what they're working on right now. Even Jalen Brunson, I'm not saying he's a bad defender, but he's small. You play the Knicks, they have a ton of good defensive personnel. They're going to seek out those type of matchups where even in the Pacers, when they played the Pacers, they went at Halliburton because Halliburton's not a good defender. So that's mm-hmm. stuff they're working on now in the regular season to get to those mismatch, mismatches quicker because that's something they haven't been great at in the past. Right. It's a good point. How do we how do we get the the Nets into the playoffs, Brian? We got we got to work on that. Oh God, they don't even have a coach <laughs> right now. Oh, you know who their I coach is now. actually? Kevin Ollie is now their coach, which is one of the most bizarre careers of all time. He gets like he obviously he played at UConn, but he takes over for Calhoun, wins a national championship, and then a couple of years later he's gone. Huh. And now UConn, I Hurley's Dan Hurley's an outstanding coach. Like that team is an absolute machine right now. Are they ranked one right now, Brian? Yeah, they're number one in the country. They just yeah. last weekend they just beat the shit out of Marquette. They uh-huh. they were awesome in that game. I was on UConn. They they were that's a that team is super talented. And I gave out the pick the other day on the pod. I think Houston to beat um Iowa State. That to mm-hmm. me is the second best team in the country. I don't know they rank third, Houston. so it's it's not like a hot take that I'm saying the, the team that's ranked third in the country. Purdue's number two, I believe, still. I just hmm. like or Houston may have moved up to number two, but they play really good defense and now their guards are actually starting to play well. So we'll see how this goes in terms of uh I don't know why I'm going onto this tangent about college. Oh, Kevin <laughs> I brought you there. Sorry. Kevin Ollie. Yeah. That's how I got yeah. there. Kevin. Yeah. Kevin Ollie. Weird career. Wins a national championship. And I didn't even know he's on the, honestly, I didn't know he's on the Nets staff. Oh my God. Kevin <laughs> Ollie's the coach. What the hell? Um, well, speaking of coaches, Brian, we, we can shift gears a bit. This is, um, this is a Red Sox question. This is from Will. Will writes, I really enjoyed your interview with Ian Cundell last week. Uh, the Sox seem to have a cloud of doom hovering over them, but the interview left me a little bit hopeful this season. Well, that's nice. Uh, but for now, back to the gloom. Firstly, I am concerned about having Alex Cora as our manager in 2024. His news conference the other day sounded defeated. 
I understand he may want to compete with a more talented team, but I don't think we'll get the best performance out of the Red Sox with a dejected manager. In a bridge year, I feel we need a more energized manager who's ready to train and build a young roster. And secondly, are we sure Cora is even a good manager? It's tough to be liked in Boston, but he uh, seems to have skirted by without being targeted for some of his deficiencies. Um, he has three points. He says Cora's record is eerily similar to John Farrell, and Boston basically ran Farrell out of town after his fifth season. Uh, Cora's team is the playoffs in 2019 with an incredibly sta- stacked roster. And uh, Cora mentions his interest in being part of a front office. However, the quality of the talent of this team has significantly fallen since 2018. Sure, blame ownership first, but Cora carries some of the responsibility too. Uh, what do you think of his overall point, Brian? All right, so 2019 was definitely a disappointment, and Cora would be Cora would be the first one to admit that they had this weird idea coming into the season. Two weird ideas where they didn't put a lot of mileage on their pitchers in spring training because they were coming off that 2018 run where, if you remember, all oh, those right. guys, Porcello, David Price, they were all coming out of the bullpen, like in that, in Nate Evaldi. Yeah. And so they get to the season in 2019, they go out west, they're not ready. Like the pitchers aren't ready, so it took them a while yeah. to get going. And Porcello really never was never the same pitcher ever again, and you could say the same thing about David Price. There's, maybe that was just part of the aging. Say about Sale, too. <laughs> yeah, and the other weird decision that year, I thought, was the Mookie Benintendi thing. And I've talked about this before, where they switched them in the order, where mm. Benintendi went to the leadoff spot, and Mookie went to the two-hole. Now, here is the issue with Benintendi this year, or that year, rather. I'm not kidding when I say this. He was doing The Rock's workout, like Dwayne Johnson, right. The Rock. So he bulked up. He was actually less athletic, yeah. and that's where sort of he made his hay. He's an athletic guy. He was an on-base guy, and he was a good defensive player. I mean, not a great arm, but of course, he made that dive and catch in the World Series. He could get to a lot of balls in the outfield. His power numbers actually went down, too. So he got bigger. But he hit for less power because he was less athletic, right? So right. that was an issue with Benintendi in and of himself. But yeah, that was a disappointing year for sure for the Red Sox. And what we'd find out about Sale, remember, Sale was not good down the stretch of that season. And for a good majority of the season, we found out he was hurt, right? Yeah. And that was sort of the beginning of the end for Chris Sale. So that was part of it. A lot of it had to do with injuries. Like I said, a couple of decisions that I thought I thought the, the Benintendi-Mookie thing was weird. And Mookie had a down year in 2019, too. Like, a lot of guys had down years. But, like, that was Rafi was the best hitter on the team that year. Mm-hmm. And that was when Rafi was really young. But then uh, flipping forward in terms of, I don't blame Cora for any of the personnel stuff with this no, team. No, me neither. He does, like, he can give suggestions, but it's the people in the front office are making the decisions in terms of what happened. In terms of, he is a good manager. We saw what he did to Kevin Cash in 2021. I mean, yeah. we know we, they won in 2018. And they had this philosophy, fastballs up in the zone, bury the breaking balls. That's how they were beating everybody. And then they got super big into launch angle as offense in 2018. That's when Mookie started to hit for way more power because Cora's like, we want you to hit the ball in the air more. And that's when he started to hit for more power. And then the other thing I would say is in terms of 2021, he was getting guys out of the lineup by bringing in relievers early. He was tricking Kevin Cash. Like what he did in that series is he knew that, he had obviously way more righties in the bullpen than lefties, even the starters that they were bringing out of the bullpen. So they wanted to get, because Tampa, they have all these lefties, they have all these righties, like they're this versatile lineup. So they wanted to get the lefties out early. So he would bring in a lefty to get Meadows basically 
out of the lineup, right? So that meant that they were going to be going to a right a right-handed batter, right? So then later on in the game, you'd have all your righties in the bullpen and you have the Rays up there with all these right-handed hitters. That was part of the That's strategy smart. that Yeah, that was part of the strategy. Now they did get lucky in that series too with the Hunter Renfro play. Remember that? Where it bounced off the wall Hit Hunter rule. Renfro and went over the fence. I never I, even I, knew that rule until it happened. Then I never like, seen right. it happen before. No, I've never seen it happen. Like, because it's not a Jose Canseco one where it's hitting him off the head. It right. actually bounced off the wall, then hit the player. I've never seen that before. So yeah, it was like it think, was like not intentional that he batted it over the fence or something like that. Yeah, I do think Cora is a good manager. And getting back to this is in terms of I because I think the fair question, one of the fair questions in there is just well, how motivated is he, is yeah. he going to be? I think he's going to be incredibly motivated for multiple reasons. First of all. If this team overachieves, he's breaking the bank. He's getting a crazy amount of money. And then secondarily, he mentioned, like, I didn't feel like Cora was dejected at the press conference. He said, essentially, he doesn't want to talk about the contract, which I think he just wants to end the contract talk now. I don't think he wants to be talking about Mm -hmm. his contract as we get into the season. So I think that was smart by Cora. But secondly on that, Cora said he feels better mentally, physically. He said at the press conference that last year took a toll on him. And he feels like he's in a better place. So mm. I believe him when he says that. And he, he's he lost a ton of weight. Like, he, he looks better, too. So I think that Cora, in terms of his motivation, I don't think you have to worry about the manager. I think he was just fatigued by the end of last season, the way that things went. And I think about this. Alex Cora stayed in Major League Baseball for as long as he did because he's a really good defensive player. Yeah. And he's managing this team that... It's- they couldn't throw the ball to first base. They couldn't field the ball. They go out in left field. He had a pop-up. It's basically like a triple because Yoshida doesn't yeah. know what he's doing. So I think that had to have had... It definitely bothered him. Yeah, so I, I'm not concerned about the manager. Like, out of the things that I'd be concerned about on this team, the manager would be basically last on the list. Yeah, well, apparently he addressed the full team yesterday, too. And I don't know. I saw a lot of just quick snippets from players that all said... were They responded positively to his speech, so... That's a good sign. And his other point, too, he mentioned comparing his record to John Farrell's. I will note that John Farrell managed the 2016 and 2017 Red Sox that both finished in first place. 2016, you had freaking David Ortiz hitting 40 home runs and Mookie Betts emerging as a star, and they both got bounced in the first round. So I don't see that happening if Alex Cora is the manager. Yeah, those 13 team won the World Series, and then... 14 and 15, they were not great. And then the roster... 16 and like, 17, they were great. The, yeah, the young guys were starting to come up and Mookie was hitting his own. Like, they started to become really nasty at, at that particular point in time. And then in 17, they traded for Sale, too. Sale was awesome. He had 300 yeah, strikes year. that year. Yeah, he kind of wore down. Yeah, I, I think I referenced this on the... I can't remember if it was on the pod or somewhere else last week that David Price used to call him Manager John. I just found that hilarious. He didn't call him <laughs> Skip or... Cora doesn't like to be called Skip, but he didn't call him, like... John or Skip, he just called him Manager John, which I've never heard a player call the manager manager and then their first name. It's just weird. David, David Price was a strange guy. Yes, very strange. By the way, did you see the clip that was going around on social media on, what was this, Tuesday? Or excuse me, Monday. Hey, Oscar Hernandez was on yeah. Ben Verlander's podcast. He wanted to come here, and he basically said the Red Sox didn't make a good enough offer. Like, this guy wanted to play here. He said he loves playing at Fenway. It's his favorite place to play. Uh, that's that very, very upsetting news to hear for sure. No, I mean, yeah. he's like, he's like, and I just saw someone trying to analyze what happened and like, well, like they wanted to maybe go more than two years, but they, they couldn't clear enough money. It's like, is there like a, like a couple dollars in the corners of the bank vault that they're like trying to scratch? Like, what does that mean? Like, why don't you just sign him 
and then trade Kenley Jensen. Like, I, it, there's no, I don't understand. It's not like if they yeah. sign him, well, they go over the luxury tax, and it's like, no, you have room to be flexible. Yeah, it doesn't happen until the end of the season. Yeah. But hey, according to Sam Kennedy, there's parameters. So, but for what reason? Like, what what is the point of the parameters? If the parameters to be under 220 million, and you sign Teoscar Hernandez, and you go over 225 million, and why can't you just dip below again? I just I don't understand the logic. Nobody does. Nobody does. It's <laughs> yeah, idiotic. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.